Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, please, as we finish this chapter, these last few verses of it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're looking at verses 14 through 16. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, again, we pray for your guidance and your wisdom. Uh, We have none of our own. The only wisdom we have is according to our nature, which is still wrestling with sin, which is still struggling in rebellion against you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in that struggle this morning as we come to infinite wisdom, as we come to a place where we can learn more and more about you, what we learn about your plan for salvation, we learn about your plan for the church. Lord, give us strength to follow it, give us strength to obey, convict us of our sin. It's in your name we pray, amen. So as I came to this text, and Paul is getting at the, really at the crux, I believe, of what he is writing about in this whole letter, he's talking about how we ought to behave. And the word behave made me think of a new resident that we have in our home. Some of you guys have met him. His name is Einstein. He's a dog. Uh, we don't have a new child or anything. Um, I don't think we'd name him Einstein. But we have a dog named Einstein. He's, uh, he's a lot of fun. He's, he loves to do dog things, you know, run around and smell things and chew things up like our clothes and our flesh sometimes. Uh, our floors have been spotless, which has been awesome because he doesn't even allow food to hit the floor. It's already gone. He uh, loves to eat anything that's on the floor. He assumes that it's all food. And, of course, he's always willing to listen when it benefits him. For instance, if we have like a piece of bacon in our hand and want him to do something, I think we could probably get him to write a dissertation if he could just get the bacon. Um, but if we don't have anything... Sometimes he listens, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he's about his own business. You know, he won't even do simple things like sit, which I think if I had a piece of food in my hand, I could get him to do from like across the football field. Um, Why does he do that? Well, because he's a dog. Dogs may smell fear, but they cannot read our minds, nor can they understand the nuance of the English language. So... They just do what they want to do sometimes because that's their nature, right? They, they ignore us when they want to. They pretty much do what you would think dogs do. They eat, sleep, and they defend their tiny little territories, um, and they disobey most of the time. Even the best-behaved dogs disobey sometimes because they're dogs. That's what they do. And so in our text today, we're looking at this concept of behavior, and I think we all can understand and we all struggle with this idea of not behaving as we know we should. Uh, the scriptures are clear, the things that we ought to be doing, and we know that we disobey them regularly. We don't do the things we ought to do. We do things we shouldn't do. You guys get the idea. And I think in this verse, or these three verses, Paul really gives us the theme of this book. And he tells us what we should be looking for, I think, as we read the entire uh, book of First Timothy. Um, and this is how we should or how we ought to behave. You know, if, I think I thought a lot about our time in church history and the different churches that we've looked at and the different people 
And I thought, what if the church always, from the very beginning, had been doing what it was supposed to have been doing? Well, I think we'd still have churches in places like Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae, cities that are gone now and churches that are gone now because largely they weren't doing what they were supposed to have been doing. And so for us, I think as we start out, as we become a church, as we are a small church today and we are learning what it means to be a church together, I think it's important for us to read these words and that we should be careful and understanding what these words mean. Not that we're any less careful with the rest of Scripture, but I think you understand what I mean. That this, this is important for us to really grasp what Paul is telling us, as an apostle of the Lord, how the church ought to behave. And so as we look at this text, I want to look at three points. First, how we ought to behave. Second, the church is a pillar of truth. And then looking at the way and the truth, our Lord Jesus Christ and so with that, let's go to the text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 16. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up. In glory. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So first, let's look how we ought to behave. And I think the rest, the whole book really instructs us there. But Paul gives us some clues here, I think, even in, these, in this opening verse. And I think it's important. So again, Paul's writing to, T- to Timothy. And he's talking about the church, and particularly as Timothy goes to, he's planning to go to Ephesus to deal with some of the problems that the church is having there. There's a lot of loaded words, again, in this text, and so let's look at some of them. First of all, he says how the church, or first of all, understand what the, church, the text doesn't say. It doesn't say how uh, the, he suggests the church should behave or how the church could behave. But the, the thrust of the text here is how the church must behave. The word ought in English isn't a word that we use often, but it it implies a moral imperative. This is something that is being commanded to us by the apostle, which in this case is acting as the voice of God. So this is something that is directly imperative for us to do. Again, these aren't suggestions for us to uh, how how the church should act. This This doesn't change later when the surrounding climate and ethos of culture changes. These are things that are transcending history, transcending all of culture and rise above to command all his people. All right, and so this is important for us. Make sure we understand that. And I hit on that every week, but it's important for us to understand this is God's word. Sometimes we, we, I think we understand this concept in theory, but in practice we want to make exceptions. The word is clear on how we ought to do, how we ought to worship how we ought to build his church, how we ought to act. And so in those things that aren't clear, 
we tread very carefully. We don't make up rules where there aren't things, and I think we all understand this, or we just don't tread at all. But on the things that are clear, we should be excellent on. We should strive to perfection on, not in order to earn our salvation, but in order to glorify God. And so Paul uses the word household here too, which is a, an interesting word. It's a term for gathering, but it's also a term that could be just house, the household of God. We understand the word house in our own language to mean a place where we are gathered to our families. The word house has a lot of emotional context involved with it. It's a place where we invite guests, where we share food and our hospitality, where we grow accustomed to our houses. We love them. There are places where we rest, where we find comfort and security. But the house isn't the family that lives in the house. They're two different things, and I think we all understand that. My family just went and visited my parents' house. We brought our family with us, including our new dog, and we brought our family back. And so we all understand the difference there. And so this, the Greek word here, uh, oikos, not the yogurt, really denotes all of these things. It is a very full word, the word oikos. It's a word for, for family, for the household, meaning your possessions, everything in it, the things in the house, the actual house itself. And so context here helps us to see that this is a very loaded word. Paul helps us by adding the word church later as he, as he goes on to describe that. The household of God, which is the church of the living God. Another word for gathering. This word church in the Greek is the word, is the ecclesia, which, you know, we, we've heard these words like ecclesiastes or ecclesiastical. These are big words, so I understand that. But this word also means gathering. A group of folks that are gathered together specifically under a common heading. The word literally means called out ones, ones who are called out to a common purpose. The church is under a common heading. What is that? We are the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called out of the world and into his light. And so these people, the household of God, the church of the living God, these are particular people that are gathered together. So in that way, the household of the living God, his church, is a family. And we should see it that way. When I was a kid, after church, we, we would span the aisles and sing this song, you know, fam, maybe you know it, Family of God, you know, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family. You guys have heard that song, maybe? Okay. We would all, like, hold hands, and it was, of course, that was my least favorite part of the service, as you can imagine. Um, having to do that. Um, but I understand the reasoning behind that, why we did that. Why were we doing that? Why did the pastor have us do that? Because he wanted to remind us, as a church, we were a family. We are a family here. And again, not just Redeemer Community Church, but the church in Murray. We understand that. We have friends that span most of the churches in this community, in this county. We understand the meaning of family in the church, even in a, in a bigger sense. I have friends in the church all over the country, and we get this idea of family. We are those called out to worship and obey him. So then, if we are the family of God, how should we live? How should we behave? 
as a family. First of all, we should be with our family as often as possible. If we are the household of the living God, we cannot, by definition, be divided. God is not divided, therefore we cannot be divided. A member of that household will only ever desire to be in that household and a part of that household, a part of that family. There is no desire of a family member of God's house to drift away from the family. Show me someone who hates the church and willfully chooses not to be a part of it, and I'll show you an outsider. Everyone has times of struggle. I get that. We all understand that. But when someone demonstrates a pattern in their life of distancing themselves from the church for all sorts of reasons, we don't have to list them, they need to strongly examine their life and their commitment to Christ. There are about 20,000 residents in the Murray area. How many of them are in church this morning? Maybe 2,000. Maybe are in church this morning. And yet... 16,000, according to the statistics, would call themselves Christians. How is that? Why is that? I think it's important for us to understand that. This isn't us pointing fingers at the people who aren't in church this morning. This is us understanding the community that we minister in. What is going on with those thousands of Christians or people who call themselves Christians? Why aren't they gathering together with the household of God? Because this is what we do together on the Lord's Day. We come together as his people. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a familiar passage. Hebrews chapter 10. And this tells us why we ought to gather together. Why we ought to meet together. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25 it says this therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do what? Well, since all of this is true, and all of this being what he has built up in the first, in the first nine and a half chapters, that Christ is the perfect substitute, Christ is the perfect priest, Christ is the perfect everything for the life of the believer, since this is all true, since we have this confession that we confess together, then what does he tell believers to do? Verse 24, let us consider then how to stir one another up to love and good works. 
Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How can we do that if we're not together? How can we do that if we don't meet together? Jesus is faithful. The confession that we hold is true. So let us then behave as we ought to. and Let us stir one another up to do so, to love and to good works. Secondly, I think it's important as Christians in the church, we wear the name of Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians, those who are like Christ. That's not a bad word. When we don't behave as we ought, what do we do with the name of Christ? When I call myself a Christian and I act like an idiot in the community, I am taking the name of Jesus and essentially tossing it to the ground. I'm breaking the third commandment, right? I'm taking the Lord's name in vain. When my mom would grab my ear when we were out in public, I love my mom, by the way. I'm not talking badly about her. I'm talking badly about me. She would grab my ear when we were out in public, and she could do with me as she wanted at that point. Why did she do that? Because I was acting probably like some feral pig, acting ridiculous, and it embarrassed her. I was taking the name of Chipman in vain. I was taking her name and stomping all over it because I was raised better than that. I should have known better than that. And so in much the same way, when we, we behave as we ought because Jesus, who is Jesus in relation to us? He is our Savior, yes, but in the family of God, he is our elder brother. We are children of the Father in heaven by adoption, not because we deserve it. Not because, like Jesus, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We have been added to the family. We bring nothing of our own to the table. And if you're like me, we bring nothing but our own feral pig acting selves. We are the least deserving to have any sort of salvation. But yet we wear his name because he acted on our behalf even while we hated him. He did that for us. And so let us now then, that we wear the name of Christ as Christians, act as we ought to. Let the scripture guide us to that end. Second point, the church as a pillar of truth. Paul goes on to describe, he says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He describes the church as a pillar and as a buttress of the truth. I think we're familiar with these words. These are both structures that support a building, that hold up and give support to the, the bottom and in the top of the building. Uh, you think particularly in architecture of that day, of the Greek architecture that was around, even the Jewish architecture, pillars were a very prominent feature. You can still see some of this as you see these ancient uh, buildings from the past. What has remained? The foundations and the pillars. A lot of times. There are still the things that are sticking up. They, hold, they would hold these massive stone roofs over their heads. The buttress was the foundation that all of it set upon in order, in order to hold up the whole structure. And the pillars would hold up the roof. And so how is the church then a pillar and a buttress of the truth? Well, Paul tells us. He gives us a confession. He calls it the mystery of of godliness, he says there in verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He, has, he was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who's he talking about? He's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a quotation from the Old Testament. I think we're accustomed to seeing quotations from the Old Testament kind of set apart in the New Testament, but this is probably a very early confession of the church or even a very early hymn of the church, maybe something they sang together um, under the New Testament, understanding Jesus and, and his coming. Whatever it is, it contains the very things that we hold to be true in regards to our salvation, right? The mystery that Paul speaks of here is the mystery of salvation, which has been revealed to the church through the person and work of Jesus Christ and recorded in the sacred scriptures. All the other things that would attempt to usurp that, science and logic, other religions, philosophy, none of these things can offer truth the way the scriptures do. The church, then, is a pillar of the truth. What do we do with the truth that we have? We hold it up. It's not our own truth. It is the church. It's the truth that we've been given. Again, not because we make it true. Make sure you understand that. It's true because he made it true. It's true whether or not we believe it even. We, our belief doesn't make it true. You've all seen the, the uh, bumper sticker that says, uh, he said it, I believe it, therefore it settles it or whatever. The I believe it part's really not even important there. Uh, he said it, therefore that settles it. All right, It is the truth. But we hold it up for the world to see, and we defend it just as we've been instructed. And I think this confession is great. This is the basic Christian belief, right? We have the incarnation. He's manifested in the flesh. Next we have he's vindicated by the Spirit, meaning that he was raised from the dead. He was vindicated. Seen by angels. When was he seen by angels? Well, we believe the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to be eternal. Of course, he's been seen by angels. He made them. Proclaimed among the nations by, the, by his church, going out into the world. Believed on in the world to fulfill the promise of Abraham that we've talked about. That the whole world might be blessed by his seed, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Taken up into glory, where he sits now at the right hand even now interceding on the behalf of his people. So church, let's consider this. We have been given this truth. We have been called pillars of truth, a buttress of the truth. What do we do with it? Well, we hold it up. It is both our foundation, the thing that we rest upon, and the thing that we hold up to the world that is desperate for the truth. That's what they're desperate for. They're not desperate to feel good. Anyone can feel good. They're desperate for the truth. And we cannot stand without the truth. Remember the two houses that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. I want to read it for us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I think this is particularly poignant in light of this passage that we've seen. We all know this passage, but I want us to look at it together. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. And understand how Jesus sets this up, how he introduces this idea of truth. Everyone then who hears these words of mine 
and does them. He hears these words of mine, which are truth again by definition, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So understand, what is the truth? It's a pillar. It's a buttress. We demonstrate that when we hear his words and do them. What does not doing the words of Jesus represent? No foundation, no support, no message for the outside world. What does the world see when they look at the church who is not doing the words of Christ? They see a broken house. They see a wreck that has crashed on the beach. They see nothing. They can get that anywhere. How can the household of God be attractive to the outside world then? I think this is important for us as a church who wants to grow, who wants to see people come to know the Lord Jesus in a tempestuous sea of crisis and scandal, lies, unknown things, crazy political figures even now as you just turn on the news, the world will begin to wonder about the church when we are still standing through it all rather than being tossed around. Why are we standing? Because we are built upon the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth himself Jesus Christ. And then to our last point quickly, the way and the truth. What did Jesus call himself? He called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And the whole church rests upon him. And so not only that, how we ought to behave then rests on him as well. And I think that's a consolation to us who sometimes are like the unbehaved dog who doesn't know right from left. Yes, we are called to work out our salvation. That is true. We talk about that. Obedience, yes, depends upon us. We should do as we ought to do. However, it's by grace alone that we have the power to do so. Even those times when we struggle, when we forsake the meeting together, as we're prone to do, when we don't behave as we ought, when we are again like dogs rolling around in the garden right after a bath. He still takes us in his tender arms and he grows us up in the faith even despite ourselves. Thankfully, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is both the truth that we hold up to the world. He is the truth then that holds us up also. He came to save us. He will bring us home whenever that time comes. And so, church, let us behave as we ought to. We know what's right because we know what's right is contained in these words. It's plain to us. There's no secrets here that we can't read. And so let us behave as we ought. Let us act on them now that God might get the glory, that people would know, that people would come. Let us rest on Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray for your help. We 
are desperate for your help, actually, because if left to our own devices, we will quickly uh, skip the whole obedience thing and do as we want to. Uh, we want to obey you most of the time. Lord, help us to do that more and more. Help us to seek out holiness that you might get the glory. That people may see the church as a pillar of truth, standing in a storm of lies and everything crazy, that they would look upon the church and say, that's what I want. That they may see us, how we love them, how we love one another, and that they might believe. It's in your name we pray. Amen.